You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. I trust that you read Jeremiah chapter 7 through 10. And that is going to give you a little bit of a head start in the service tonight. Um, Okay, so if you read it, how many of you can understand a little bit about what's going on, what he's saying in the, in the chapters? It, a, little, a little bit, okay? How many of you would say I'm kind of a, on a scale of one to five, I'm like a two to a four. I understand some portions, not so much, some others. That's kind of where I was. There are some familiar verses in these chapters uh, that some people kind of pick out and quote and different things. I really want to give us an overview of all of it. I'll apply it at the end, but... What's going on in these chapters is what's known as Jeremiah's temple sermon. That is really what it's known as. And it's all about how Israel's trust is all the wrong stuff. Or more important, more specifically, Judah. Judah's trust is all in the wrong things. They're trusting in their religion, and they're trusting in their works, And they're trusting in symbols and sacrifices and offerings rather than God. That's the whole problem. And Jeremiah is going to bring this out in many different ways. Now, before we get there, we need to remember what is happening in Jeremiah, especially the timeline of everything in Jeremiah. Who is king at the moment? Do do you remember? Who is king at the moment when Jeremiah is called into his ministry? It should be in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 or 2, somewhere in there. Stephanie? No, Hezekiah is long dead. That is actually Isaiah who uh, prophesied during Hezekiah. What was that? No, no, he's a little bit later. No, Josiah. There it is. Josiah is when he starts. A lot of people believe that Josiah and Jeremiah were around the same age. Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old, it's in the 13th year of his reign that Jeremiah starts prophesying, okay? So they're both around 20, 21 possibly, okay? Uh, We know that Josiah is 21, Jeremiah is probably right there around the same age, okay? What is Josiah's reign really known for? Not all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, because Josiah says we need to start repairing the house of the Lord. We need to start getting rid of all of this stuff, all the false idols, because while they're repairing the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they find the book. They find a copy of the law of Moses. People come read it before Josiah. He gets horribly convicted because he realizes that for the longest time, They haven't been doing any of those things. They haven't been keeping the Passover. They haven't been keeping the feast days. So Josiah calls for the sweeping reformation, and they all do it. And yet God says at one point in in, um, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Kings, he says, "I, I see all of it, but I'm not changing my mind. I am still going to let Judah go into captivity. First of all, because of all the things that Manasseh did, all the horrible things that he did, kind of pushed the Lord past the brink. But then there's another reason why. Judah is following Josiah, and yes, the temple is repaired, and all these different things. But Jeremiah points out in chapter 3, God says, the people have turned to me, but feignedly. They haven't turned to me with their whole heart. This is kind of just a show. All right, Josiah, whatever you say, yeah, we'll do that. But they really didn't change wholeheartedly. And uh, we're going to get to more of, that, uh, more of that today. Oh, I wanted to ask you about this. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 11. This is a tough question. But the Lord gives Jeremiah two visions. The first one is in verse 11. I see a rod of an almond tree. Does anyone remember why that first vision was there? What it stands for? What's the importance of an almond tree? So there is significance there. 
yes, there is very much significance there. And it's the same significance that of all the things that budded with an almond, right? Um, but the significance of it is an almond tree is the first to bud in the spring. Uh, and that's why the Lord of all the plants used that to bud for Aaron's because he's showing this decision that I have made for Aaron to be priest is happening now, not later, right? So it's the same thing now. What is his decision now for Aaron to be priest? No, for judgment to come. And God is showing it's happening now. It's not going to happen later. Uh, the second one is a seething pot with its face toward the north. Why, does the, why is it facing the north? Why is that important? That is where the, this invading army is going to come from. Now, to the north right now is Assyria. So is Assyria going to come and invade? No, we know that it's Babylon that's going to invade, which means Assyria is going to need to fall to Babylon. And that's exactly what happens, okay? So this is all happening when Jeremiah comes on the scene. Are there any other questions that I wanted to ask you? Oh, verse uh, 31 of chapter 5. Verse 31 of chapter 5 is kind of the key verse so far. Starting in verse 30, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? Where do you think that's going to lead you? It's going to lead them right to judgment. And then what we're, where we ended last week is God gives kind of a prescription to all of these problems. And it's somebody who's going to preach. It's somebody who is going to tell the truth in a nation filled with prophets who are only telling lies. It's somebody who is going to show them Priests, if you're going to do your job properly, you can't do that by your means. You have to do it by God's means. This is following God's law. And if you're going to follow God's law, you have to follow God's law God's way. You can't do God's work man's way, right? And that's all going to come out in this temple sermon. Jeremiah is going to point out to them over and over in pretty much every single way possible, pretty much everything that you're doing right now, you're either doing it wrong or, or you're doing wrong, or you're doing it for the wrong motives and the wrong purposes. Right now, in the midst of this sweeping reformation, Jeremiah comes on the scene, and we started, we read in chapter 7, uh, verse 1. Picture this young prophet with me, okay? Picture this young prophet, maybe in his 20s, standing up in the gate of the temple. And people are rushing in and out, They've just repaired this temple under the leadership of Josiah. They're coming in to worship the Lord, right? That's why they're there at the temple. And Jeremiah screams, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, keep up the good work, guys. Right? No, not at all. Amend your ways and your doings. And then I will cause you to dwell in this place. Hold up. That is an interesting choice of words used by the Lord and given to Jeremiah. What was the temple? The temple was the place where God's presence dwelled among his people, right? The temple was the place where God's people were coming to worship the God who dwelled among the people. But God says, if you were living right... I would cause you to dwell here along with me. We would have constant fellowship, you and I. To which Judah must be thinking, I thought we were doing pretty well. Don't you think that they would be thinking that right now? After the sweeping reformation, there's no more high places. The, the homosexuals are all out of the land. The temple has been repaired. All this stuff. And, and Jeremiah comes and says, amend your ways. Why? I thought we were doing okay. Uh, worship has been reinstated. The prophets are prophesying. And what are the prophets prophesying? Peace. Peace. The priests are bearing rule again. And we love it. We love to have it so. So why should we amend our ways and our doings if we're being told by our leaders that everything's great? And God says in verse 4, well, you're being lied to. Trust ye not in lying words saying, what do those lying words say? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Now I know when you read through this afternoon, that verse caught your eye. 
because it's repetitive, all right? And God, God knows, okay? So what, is, what does that verse mean? And as with any message, the introduction is so very important, okay? The introduction gets you on the plane. And then you take off, and the pastor circles around for a long time, and finally, and finally, and oh, one more thing, you know, and then he finally lands, okay? But an introduction is to get you coming along with him. So this verse is very important. What does this verse mean? Remember, Jeremiah is standing in the gate of the temple with the buildings and the wall and the gate and the altar, the courts, kind of all at his backdrop, right? And one can picture Jeremiah pointing at these different elements of the temple as he's preaching. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. These buildings, or these courts, or this altar, or all those different things, okay? Stop. We have to ask ourselves this question. The building that is standing behind Jeremiah, and I'm not trying to trick you, was the building behind Jeremiah the temple of the Lord? Yes, right? Why was it the temple of the Lord? Was it A, because the people called it the temple of the Lord? Or was it B, because God chose to dwell there? It's because God chose to dwell there. The people could call a building whatever they wanted. You can call it whatever you want, but unless God's in it, it's not the temple. It's not the temple of the Lord. The people of Jerusalem believed because this place is called the temple of the Lord, God is just obligated to stay. The temple of the Lord is this and this and this. God has nowhere else to live. And as long as God lives among us, how can we have anything but peace? How is this going to fall? How are we going to fail if God is dwelling among us? Right? We're following so far. Okay. But God is going to remind them, through the message of Jeremiah, what he told Solomon so long ago. Look, look with me in 1 Kings 8. We'll go and look together. Uh, stay in Jeremiah 7. It's just so important for us to get this. 1 Kings chapter 8. I want us to get to know our Bible more and more. 1 Kings 8, 27. We're good. We're fine. Did we lose live stream? We flickered. And Cole's nowhere near the lights, so I think we're good. <laughs> Never going to let you live that town, buddy. Solomon has just built the temple that Jeremiah is standing in front of that, that is newly repaired, okay? But this is what Solomon says at the dedication of the temple in verse 27 of 1 Kings chapter 8. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Solomon has the right attitude. How is this place going to be the temple of the Lord? Why would God live here when not even the heaven and heaven of heavens can contain him? The earth is his footstool. Why would he live here? But here's what God says. God says in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 of 1 Kings, uh, actually, it starts in verse 3. The Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house. I have hallowed this house, which thou hast built, to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Skip down to verse 6. But if... But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. What are they doing in Jeremiah's time? Verse 7. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight. And that is what Jeremiah is coming and saying, this is now being fulfilled. Okay? I'm going to try to bring it all in this, this introduction right here, and it's a lot of words. The point of God dwelling in the temple is for God to dwell with the people that he loved. However, 
God can only dwell with people who are holy, right? So if his people won't live holy lives, they can't dwell together. And if they can't dwell together, why would God stay? So Jeremiah is saying, don't think that this building and this altar and this court and this wall and all these things are the temple of the Lord just because you call it that. Okay? So that is just the introduction here. Because what he's trying to show is this is the symbol. Okay? The people are starting to trust in the temple of the Lord more than the Lord of the temple. And you can see that in verse 14 of Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust. Why are they trusting in the temple of the Lord and not the Lord of the temple? This is a symbol, right? And this is what we went over in Sunday school this morning, remember? A symbol can never be greater than what it symbolizes. A symbol has great value, does it not? This symbol right here that I'm miraculously still wearing after this morning. Okay, this symbol has great value, great value to it. Now, if I were to take it off and put it aside, am I, am I not married anymore? No, I'm still married. However, I mean, this, this is pretty important to my marriage, okay? The symbol and the symbolize are connected to each other like a person casting a shadow. However, if you start looking to the shadow more than you're looking to the person, the person is going to be looking at you thinking, I'm here, not there, okay? This is a symbol. This is a shadow of things to come. And who is that thing to come? The Lord. Because what does he say? I will tear this temple down and rise it up in three days. He's not talking about this building. He's talking about himself, okay? So the moment a symbol becomes greater than the symbolized, the symbol loses all of its value, because a symbol's value comes from what it symbolizes. So if you get rid of the symbolized, you also destroy the symbol. Same thing with baptism, right? Baptism, right, right back here. We're going to baptize a young man tonight, okay? That is a symbol of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a symbol. That is all it is. Now it is very important. It has great value. Salvation and baptism, they, they go together, okay? Um, now, not for salvation, but to show other people what has happened within. Baptism is an outward symbol of inward faith, but the moment we start looking to the baptism more than we look to Jesus, we make Jesus' sacrifice of no effect, and if the sacrifice of Jesus is of no effect, then why get baptized? Okay? So all of baptism's value is found in what it symbolizes. And it is the same thing with the temple. And again, we have to remember, Jesus is preaching this message to people who are exhibiting great outward religion right now. And technically, they are doing everything they're supposed to do as far as the sacrifices and offerings are concerned. Uh, I mean, the temple is in better shape than it's been in years. The sacrifices and offerings are underway. The feast days are back on schedule. But while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And he sees within. And the people who are boasting that they are so close to God are in reality very far from God. And that's what Jeremiah is bringing out. A preacher said about this, uh, God is holy, and he will not be the supporter of sin, even though it is dressed up in a form of godliness. They had all their religious rites and practices down, and because of that, they believed that God was obligated, I'm sorry, obligated to dwell among them. But God says you're being lied to. Amend your ways and your doing. And then I will cause you to dwell in this place along with me like it's supposed to be. Now, what would this amendment look like? More offerings, more rituals, more sacrifices, more feast days, more outward religion services? No, absolutely not. God is looking for an inward change. And he gives a list of these in verse 5 and 6 of Jeremiah chapter 7. He says, why don't you stop oppressing the stranger? Why don't you execute judgment between a man and his neighbor? Be fair and honest with one another. 
Don't oppress the stranger and orphans and widows. Be kind and courteous to everyone. Stop taking advantage of the weak. Shed not, ooh, this is an interesting one. Shed not innocent blood in this place. Question, were people like going to the temple and murdering one another in the middle of the court? I'm guessing not, okay? Wasn't the temple the place where you were supposed to shed the blood of an innocent sacrifice to atone for your sin? So then why is God telling them to stop? Put that in your pocket. Come back to that in just a little bit, okay? But it's a very important question. He says, stop worshiping idols. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place. But in verse 8, he says, behold, ye trust in lying words. Verse 4, he says, trust not in them. Verse 8, he says, but you are. And it was a very obvious lie, a horribly obvious lie. The lie being, as long as you come to this place and make your sacrifices and offerings, everything's good, right? And God says, no, that's not how it works. Think about it. Look in verse 9. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. The temple of the Lord was not a place for them to come and get right so that they could turn around and go and live wrong. And again, this lie is God is here. It's the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Now, before the temple of the Lord was ever there in Jerusalem, it was in a place called Shiloh, back in 1 Kings 4. Back in the days of Saul and David, okay, it was at a place called Shiloh and Samuel, the prophet. And if you will remember, they, I don't know what's going on, but we'll be okay, all right? Um, if you will remember... In 1 Kings chapter 4, the Israelites are going to battle against the Philistines, and they're losing. So they say, we need help. So let's bring the ark out of the temple in Shiloh, and we'll bring it to the battle almost like a rabbit's foot, and we're going to win. What happens? They lose, and the ark is stolen. The glory has departed, and the ark, which is where God's presence sat on, never came back to Shiloh. And God reminds them of that in verse, um, let's see, in verse 12. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh. How did it work out for them? They thought the same thing, that because I had chose to set my name there, I was just always going to be there, and it didn't work out, did it? He said the same thing is going to happen here in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah tells the people, it's so bad. Your situation is so bad. God told me to stop praying for you. In verse 16, look, did you catch that when you read through? Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Church, I do not fully understand that. I really don't. But I do remember that there is a verse in 1 John 5 that says there is a sin unto death. And he says, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. I don't fully understand it, but apparently you can get so far with God that not even prayers will help you. And that is what's happening with Israel or with Judah. He says, don't even pray for him anymore. Judgment was determined in verse 17 and 18 and 19 and 20. Their wickedness was a family affair. Dad would say, kids, go out and get wood. The kids would bring wood. The dad would start the fire. The mom would use the fire to bake a cake, and then they would give it to the queen of heaven, not the Lord. So the family would serve and sacrifice to the queen of heaven and then come to the temple of the Lord and give sacrifices to him there as well. What hypocrisy. And Jeremiah is calling it out. Thus saith the Lord of hosts in verse 21, the God of Israel... Put your burnt offerings under your sacrifices and eat flesh. To put that in words that we would say today, God's saying, save it. You get that? Save it. I don't want anything to do with it. They were so pleased with their sacrifices, so pleased with their offerings to God. This is the second time now that God is telling them, stop with the sacrifices. He said it to them once, 
shed not innocent blood in this place, and now he's saying it again. Look in verse 22. For I, oh, this is good. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Are you following? said, when I first brought you out of Egypt, what did I ever tell you about sacrificing to me? What did I ever tell you about offering to me as far as burnt offerings are concerned? Look in verse 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways which I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. The sacrifices and offerings were never plan A. Think back to the garden. What was plan A? Don't eat the tree. But when they ate the tree, now blood has to be shed. So the sacrifices and offerings were never plan A. God just said, why don't you be a kingdom of priests unto me? Why don't you be a holy nation and a peculiar people? Why don't you just obey? Obedience was plan A. But from the very beginning, Israel showed them to be a very disobedient people. So that's why God teaches them about sacrifices and offerings, so that they could have a way to atone for their disobedience. But now Israel is under the impression, we can just live however we want, do whatever we want, because we can come to the temple of the Lord and make an atonement for our sin. And then just go off and do whatever. So God says, keep it. I want nothing to do with it. So let that be a reminder to us. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Doing right is better than getting right. God wants us to constantly be being right on the inside with him, not constantly getting right on the outside with him. Getting right is necessary because we are going to fall. But a just man falls seven times, rises up again. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he give us such grace so that sin may abound? Or go and sin no more, right? These things I write unto you, 1 John 2, 1. These things have I written unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, but just because grace is unending and just because mercy is unending and renewed every morning, do you want to be a constant recipient of mercy and forgiveness? Do you want to constantly live according to God forgiving you? Or do you just want to live right? Now, I'm thankful for forgiveness. And we're going to need it a lot. Probably every day. But God help us when we get the idea, oh, well, we have grace, right? It's all under the blood. So we can just do whatever we want to do. And that's what these people are doing. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness in New Testament is what um, Peter said. Now, punishment had to come. In verse 29 through 34, the people are told to prepare for judgment. Verse 29 through 34 of chapter 7 are basically God's way of saying, go to your room. Okay, that is the equivalent. Prepare for judgment. They're bringing their false gods into the temple and worshiping them there? They're sacrificing their children to Molech? God says, no, 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 no. I'm done with that. Prepare for punishment. Many, and he says, many of the people are going to die. Many of you in this judgment and this invasion are going to die. Now that's harsh, right? Now, that sounds harsh. Why would God do that? I thought that God was love. No, 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 no. The wages of sin is... Every time. Now we continue in two verse, uh, or in chapter 8. He says at the end of chapter 7, many people are going to die. He also says, and it's very interesting, he says the bones of the leaders, the bones of these corrupt leaders are going to be exhumed. They're going to be brought out from under the ground by the Babylonians and strewn out on the ground for all to see. Why would that happen? Well, first of all, it was a perfect symbol. Because as Jeremiah is exposing the inward corruption of the leaders in his preaching, God says one day this invading army is going to come and literally take the bones of these corrupt leaders and expose them to everybody. So it was a perfect symbol, but also it was very ironic. Because God says the bones of the leaders are going to be laid out in front of the very idols that they worshipped. And it's going to prove that those idols had no power to save you. 
Now, before anybody starts thinking that God is going overboard in this punishment, I mean, he even says in verse 3, the people who are left alive and go into captivity, they're going to wish for death. They're not even going to want to be alive anymore. That's how bad it's going to be. And there's another lesson. Choosing disobedience over obedience to God will always lead you to live a life that you don't want to live anymore. It's always, you're always going to come to that point, I do not want to live this way anymore. That is what disobedience always leads to. And God is not being impatient here. He's been very patient. Look in verse 4. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite expositors, said, said this about that passage. If men fall, it is naturally expected for them to rise. If they wander, it's naturally expected that they will return. But in the case of Jerusalem, this had not been so. God listened. He, he listened to what Israel had to say or Judah had to say. But not one person in Jerusalem repented from their sin. Look at verse 7. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times. And the turtle, from what I understand, that's not like the, a, a tortoise, a turtle dove. And the turtle, the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do ye say we are wise when a bird knows more than you? How do you say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The scribes spent all this time copying down the law of the Lord so that the people could read it, also that they wouldn't obey it. What a waste of time. And Jeremiah gives this solemn news in verse 10 through 17. God's judgment has been made certain. Everyone is doing wrong, and yet the leaders claim that all is right, but when God shows that it actually is wrong, nobody cares, and nobody wants to change. And because they were unashamed of their sin, God was going to bring shame on them. Jeremiah gives a vision of God's judgment. The people will try to run and hide in Jerusalem, and yet they'll know this was our fault. God told us this was going to happen. They won't be able to complain. But by verse 18, Jeremiah can't contain it anymore. Now, what is Jeremiah known as? The what prophet? The weeping prophet. And he cannot contain it anymore. His heartache overflows for his people. He says in verse 19, this is incredible. And it took me a while to see it and find it, but it's absolutely incredible what Jeremiah is saying in these verses. He says, my people will ask in, in that day, behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. This is what the captives are going to ask. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? In other words, I'm losing my spot here. Hang on just a sec. Yes, in other words, the people are asking, how are we being captured if the Lord is still in Jerusalem? How are we being captured if the king is still on the throne? Now, why is that important in Judah? Because as long as the king is on the throne, God's promised seed is still alive. And as long as God's promised seed is still alive, then Messiah is coming. So as these people are going into captivity, how is this happening? Isn't God still in Zion? Isn't our king still on the throne? Now, what are the answers to that question? Again, not trying to trick you. Is God still in Zion? Yes. Is the king still on the throne? Yes. So then God asks his own question at the end of verse 19. If you believe that I am still in Zion... And if you believe that my promise is still in effect, then why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? Why are you doing that? If the answer to your question is yes, then why are you worshiping other people? And why are you living for somebody who isn't going to save you one day? It's an incredible, incredible verse. But this is all just Jeremiah's love pouring out. It pours over into chapter 9. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. 
Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers in assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah loved his people so much. He asked God to give him a bigger heart. He wanted to cry more for them, weep more for them day and night. And yet he loved his Lord so much, he said, I still want to be separate from them. Lord, help me to love them, but help me to be separate from them. There's another lesson. Never let your love for the lost lead you to compromise with them. If you truly love them, you will stay separate. If you truly love them, you are going to stand for what you believe. That is the only way we will reach them, by showing them that there is a difference between light and darkness. If you love them, stand strong. If you love God, you aren't going to want to fellowship with darkness. Now, when people come back and say, why are you separating from us? Is it because you're better? We do not separate because we're better than people. We separate because we're vulnerable. That's why we separate. And I love God. And I don't want to put myself in a position of constant temptation because whenever I'm in temptation, nine times out of ten I fail. That's why we separate from people. Not because we're better than you. How dare we separate and say we are holier than thou? That is not it at all. We separate because whenever I put myself around sin, I can't handle it. That's why I separate. And there's no getting around it. The state of the people was horrible. Horribly wicked. All of them were living a lie. Jeremiah called them adulterers. Now, in, in the case, they're being idolaters. There are spiritual, there's spiritual adultery going on. Now, were they also committing physical adultery? I'll tell you this. If you have the nerve to be unfaithful to God, you'll be unfaithful to your spouse. So I'm sure that they were all adulterers, but it's talking about idolatry as well. He's talking about that they were, they were treacherous men. You know what that means? Two-faced. Look in verse 8. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he's laying his weight. <laughs> Have you ever met someone who's two-faced before? Let me, let me ask that question again in a different way. Have you ever gone to school? You're going to deal with people like that all the time. Two-faced people, constantly lying. He, he basically says in these verses, you can't trust anybody. So God's judgment is going to prove it. Like a refiner's fire only leaves behind the pure. When the judgment comes through, it's, he's going to show them all to be corrupt because they're all going to die. They're all going to perish away. Only the remnant would be, would be left. He gives another description of judgment starting in verse 10, and he reminds God's people it hurts God's heart as well. You realize that God is hurt by what is going on. God doesn't like disobedience. God doesn't like judgment. He, the Lord approveth not of, of the, he takes no delight in the, in the death of the wicked, God says. So he asks a question in verse 12. Who, who is a wise man that may understand this? Who is he whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Basically, can you answer this question for me? Why is this destruction coming? And Judah would have come back and said, because God hates us. They even told all the way back in Isaiah's day, 60 years before, it's because God's forsaken us. That's why this judgment is coming. God hates us. God's forsaken us. God just doesn't like us anymore. And Jeremiah's answer is, no, this is happening because you have chosen to disobey. This hurts God's heart. He doesn't want anything. He, he doesn't want to do this. This wasn't his choice. This isn't why he called you uh, to be his people. Judah is called to mourn for the coming judgment. And I love this, beginning in verse 23. We're going to see that Jeremiah's sermon and God's judgment was all to teach them one important lesson. And I put this up yesterday. God's punishment is never meant to bring destruction, but instruction. Destruction of sin? Certainly. Destruction of you? No. No. The only way that God's chastening will destroy you is if you run from it. That's it. But God's chasing is never to bring destruction. It's always to bring instruction, and he's wanting to teach them a lesson. What is the people's problem right now? They're looking to all the wrong things, and they have this judgment coming upon them. So they have Assyria to the north, and they're this superpower, and they have 
Egypt to the south, and they're this up-and-coming power. And they have Babylon to the east, and they're this up-and-coming power. And whenever Assyria starts creeping in, ooh, we better go to Egypt to save us from Assyria. And then whenever Egypt doesn't follow through, Assyria, do something about it. And then suddenly they're, they're mingling with Assyria. And then Hezekiah says, no, we're going to pray against Assyria. And Assyria is defeated. But then Babylon comes, hey, why don't we do something together? Yeah, totally. They're looking in the wrong places. And even their religion, what are you doing your religion for? Why are you sacrificing and giving offerings to me if you're just going to leave and go and live in adultery? Why are you going to do that? Everything is wrong right now. You are looking for salvation in all the wrong places. You are looking for deliverance in all the wrong places. Judgment is coming upon you, and even though judgment is coming, you want to be delivered from it, but you're looking to your idols to deliver you? You're looking to your good works to deliver you? You're looking to Egypt to deliver you? And God is going to show them where salvation truly comes from. Look in verse 23. Let, the, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. I'm punishing my people with the heathen people, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. There's a lot going on here. They're looking to all the wrong places for salvation. And God says, it, it doesn't come from wisdom. It doesn't matter how much you know. How much you know won't save you. It doesn't come from might. It doesn't matter how much you do. How much you do won't save you. It doesn't come from riches. It doesn't matter how much you have. How much you have won't save you. It doesn't come from being circumcised and all these things. It doesn't come from religion. It doesn't matter how much you serve. What matters is that you know me. And church, John 14, 6, how do we know God? Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If they would have opened their eyes, they would have seen what all those sacrifices and offerings were pointing to. The one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But they lost all of it. They lost that viewpoint. And that's why Judah was going to be punished right along with the heathen nations. Because within, they were no different. Now, on the outside, they're doing all this religious stuff, but God looks within. You may have everybody fooled here, but God looks on your heart, and he knows what's going on. Now, this leads us to the conclusion of Jeremiah's message and mine in chapter 10. Jeremiah reminds Judah of the foolishness and wickedness of their idolatry and false worship. Basically says, this isn't how you were taught by Moses. You, you were taught this by the heathen nations. So you need to turn away from that. Learn not the way of the heathen. Why are you listening to the heathen instead of the law of the Lord? And he basically asks this question in this chapter. When presented with the choice of worshiping idols or worshiping God, who wouldn't choose to worship God? And he starts describing their idols in verse 8. They are altogether brutish and foolish. All your idols are, are vanity. They have ears, but they hear not. Eyes, but they see not. Mouths, but they speak not, right? But then he goes on, but they, they look nice. I mean, they've got gold on them. They've got silver on them. They're, they're craftily made by the hands of man. They look nice. And hey, our idols today look nice too. That car that you polish every day sitting out in the driveway, that truck you got, that watch you wear, that job you have, ooh, it's shiny. And they're, they're worshiping all these gods because ooh, they, looked, they looked nice. But look at what Jeremiah says in verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. Hey, that, that idol looks nice, but it's false. God is true. He is the living God. Hey, that idol looks nice, but it's dead. God is alive. 
and an everlasting king. Hey, that idol looks nice, but it's temporary. God is an everlasting king. Why would you choose to trust in something that you created when you can trust in the one who created you? And in verse 14, he puts it in the nicest way possible. You are all so foolish. Every man is brutish in knowledge. And Jeremiah concludes his sermon here, starting in verse 17. He concludes his sermon, and I wrote these down. They all start with a W, and you can, you can write them down if you like. In verse 17 and 18, he concludes with a warning. Judgment is coming. Verse 19, a woe. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. Verse 21, and I'm sorry, verse 20 and 21, he gives a why. Why is this judgment coming? Because of the sin of the people. Verse 22 is the weapon, country from the north. And 23 through 25, he gives a wish. There's a warning in 17 and 18, a woe in 19, a why in 20 and 21, a weapon in 22, and a wish in 23 through 25. And his wish is basically this, God, you, have, you must have a plan in all this. You are in control. And let your will be done, but please have mercy. He says in verse 24, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. And in verse 25, he's basically saying, use the judgment to instruct your people and destruct the heathen. And what we're going to learn over the next week, the next few weeks in Jeremiah, is this message didn't really go over well. <laughs> Especially not with the men in Anathoth, which is where Jeremiah comes from. The men of Anathoth are angry at this. Jeremiah, you're bringing a bad name to our city, but hey, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin. And they did not like Jeremiah. Now, here's how I'd like to apply this sermon to us tonight. I know who I'm speaking to, but I just want to ask you a question. I want you to consider your ways and examine your heart for me, if you will. Did you notice all the times when Jeremiah's heart and compassion overflowed in his message? As he's preaching and pleading with his people and he sees their condition and he reveals their trust in religion that can't save him, the tears begin to flow. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me, he said at one point. For the hurt of my daughter of my people, I am hurt. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of my people. Woe is me for my hurt, my wound is grievous. Here's my question. When is the last time you wept for souls like that? When is the last time your heart broke at the condition of this world. When's the last time you drove through this city and tears came to your eyes and you cried for souls? We are surrounded by people who are trusting in all the wrong things. In lying words. They're being lied to. By the prophets. They're being lied to. The ones that you're supposed to be able to trust, they're being lied to. The priests are bearing rule by their means. How are, how are the common people supposed to know? We're surrounded by people who are being told that salvation comes by wisdom, and it comes by might, and it comes by riches, and it comes by religion, and we sit here and say, well, those people are just stubborn. They, they might be. We say, oh, those people are so foolish. So are we. They may be too. Oh, those people are so blinded. Yes, they are. But you have to remember, those aren't those people. Those are our people. Jeremiah never lost that. He never said those people. He said my people. That city is our city. How are they supposed to know what is false if we don't tell them what is true? It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you do. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much you serve. What matters is that you have a relationship with God that can only come through Jesus Christ. That is what matters. And somebody loved you enough. Somebody shed tears over you so that you could be saved. I guarantee you somebody cried over you. 
And church, when we tell them you're being lied to, they have to see your care. People do not care how much you know until they must see our heart or they will never hear our message. If that is the one statement we write down, they must see your heart or they will never hear your message. We speak the truth, certainly, with apology, but we speak it with love. When we lose our tears, we lose our power. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again, bringing his sheaves with him. I had a young lady call me not too long ago, crying over the phone. I'm a horrible soul winner. I'm a horrible soul winner. I told that young lady, you keep crying. You keep shedding tears over the lost. It will not be long. It won't be long before the Lord gives you a soul. It's a promise in God's word. Have you lost your tears? When we lose our love for people, we lose our power. 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Have you lost your love? Church, when I stand up here in the pulpit and say five precious souls have been delivered from hell, I shouldn't have to pump you to be excited. Have we gotten used to it? Have we gotten used to that? In a year and a half, 61 precious souls who have been saved, have we gotten used to it? God will take it away. God is not obligated to use us. He is not obligated to bless us. And he doesn't use people who have all the know-how. He doesn't use people who have all the might. He doesn't use people who have all the possessions and only the churches with the nice facilities and the programs and the flyers. No, no, no. He uses people who have a heart and who love people enough and love the Lord enough to shed some tears. How convicting that the weeping prophet said, I wish I could cry more. I wish I could cry day and night for my people. Don't lose that. Every day we need to pray, Lord, break my heart over a lost world. Do not expect the Lord to break the hearts of sinners if he can't even break the hearts of his saints. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.